Hi everyone, it's Bud, and welcome to the latest episode of Before the Cheering Started, all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment. I've been blessed to interview some pretty remarkable people, but I'm not sure I've ever interviewed anyone quite like Chandrika Tandon. It's hard enough to succeed in one industry, let alone two. She first found success in the world of business and finance, and more recently as a Grammy-nominated musician. Chandrika's journey started in India. Growing up, she was expected to do like most girls and women in India. Chandrika understood these expectations as obstacles and overcame them. Growing up, she always heard songs, songs that she now sings to her own grandchildren. And the result is her latest record, an intergenerational collection of global songs called Amu's Treasures. Grandparents, they hear a request from their grandchild. Okay, we'll go for ice cream today. Okay, I'll take you to the ball game. And happily so. Uh, in your case, okay, I'll make a CD of all this wonderful music. True? Absolutely. And in fact, it, it probably started out with all this being a bit of my fault, really. Because when my grandbaby, my first grandchild was only like a few weeks or months old, I would just be singing these chants to him which are known to have healing, soothing properties. And sure enough, his little tummy would subside every time I sang. And then my daughter made a rule. She said, look, you're like a music whisperer. You're not allowed to sing because he would be out of his nap and he would promptly fall back to sleep. So she says, no, you're not going to disrupt all my nap times. So I, I have these rules. And then as he got a little older, I started with the chants. And then he'd say, Amu, which is what he calls me, it's a delicious term of endearment. It means happiness, purity. But So he'd say, Amu, I want a new song today. And so then I would have to go into a new song. He says, no, today I want the old song and another new song. So every day, whenever he stayed with me, which was often, I would start to sing. And, you know, sometimes, but these, it would be like a full-fledged concert. I would go on for about two hours. Fortunately, he wasn't going to school at that time, so we didn't have a bedtime that we had to worry about. Mm -hmm. And the whole family would be waiting outside thinking, oh, it's going to be 10 minutes, 15 minutes, she'll put him to bed and come out. And then two hours later, you know, everybody would be like, what was going on in there? <laughs> and then the thing is, he'd say sometimes, I'll never forget this moment when I think I'm singing Surangani. And he says, Amu, no, no, stop. You're singing that too low. And I said, how am I supposed to sing it? He says, you need to sing it like this. And then he, he of course, couldn't mouth the words. He doesn't, but the tune was perfect. And he was saying, you need to. And he was in my key, which is, I think, G sharp or A that I was singing Surangani. So close enough. That's how he hears it. Wow. Uh, he's And at this point, how old is he when he's, he's giving five. you this advice? And he, Well, when he was giving me the advice, he was probably two. And I think he's now five. And then sometimes he'd say, I want to hear it again. And I want to hear it again. So one, the record was two of these songs, Ashgrove, which was one of his favorites, which I've sung nine times in a row. And, and it happened that my daughter called me up uh, one evening and she said, mom, I'm giving him his bath. He's, I have a two-year-old son. I'm giving him his bath and he's singing with sorrow, deep sorrow, my bosom is laid. And I, she said, what, what are you singing to this? Little <laughs> I said, it's Ashgrove, which I sang to you. And so this, you know, the journey continues. I mean, these are songs of long ago and far away. And 
they all were like all different kinds of emotions, you know? Uh, I'm fascinated by, <clears throat> as you say, he was two years old and, and making his suggestions. It brings to mind the old expression, everyone's a critic. Exactly. Everyone is a critic. And in fact, and and that everyone is a, a very discerning listener. Right. Because he would say to me, I want the other favorite of theirs, and my second grandson joined this, is, is Children of the Stars, this Greek song, Milise Mo. So again and again and again, I would say, Milise Mo, Milise Mo. And oh my God, it was like 10 times, 12 times, you know. So that's why this is an album for me that needs no practice. I can walk in any moment, anywhere, and just sing all 35 songs on it. What struck me about it when I first heard it, uh, some of the songs, was the interesting mixture of songs uh, and influences, certainly influences from your youth growing up, uh, and also the notion that you would include a song, a really kind of a Paul Simon song that is not well known by even those of us who think they know every single Paul Simon song. So I, I guess I'm, what I'm asking is, that mixture of influences from you growing up in India and uh, influences all over the world. Is that a conscious thing when you start to put the album together? I want this album to reflect all these different influences or is it more, uh, uh, it's not quite so defined as that. These are simply songs that I love. And over the years, my love for music, you know, my whole life, my experiences, my joys, my sorrows, my chores were all defined by music. I could not tell you what I was sad about, but I can tell you what sad song I was singing at, at that time. You know, I'll never forget there was this Delia Lavi song, which was tell him that it's snowing. I mean, during a breakup, I was singing all of that. And, you know, so I can tell you all these different songs that defined my entire life and continue to define it. Fortunately or unfortunately, some of the songs were also in different languages. You know, I lived in, you know, I learned French through music. So I sing a lot of French songs. I sing a lot of Portuguese songs. I performed a lot of these. I performed many of these songs. The Seekers were a perennial favorite of mine. In fact, the Paul Simon song, Wish You Could Be Here, one of them anyway, was from the Seekers album. It used to be side two. It was an obscure song of Bruce Woodley and Paul Simon. And Scarborough Fair is just something I, it's, it's actually a beautiful song which has an incredible um, confluence with an Indian raga, if one were to think about it. So I always improvise with Scarborough Fair, doing all kinds of jazz improvisations with, with raga singing. So it makes it very interesting for me to sing. I think especially during and now after, kind of after the pandemic, the notion of people as far as uh, merging their work lives and their passions is is has gotten more prominence is more well known the notion of people just doing one thing i think that's kind of seen as an an old uh dynamic and now the notion of people doing of course i'm an architect plus i draw or i think that's more accepted now but the notion of being in very successful in business and very successful in music, I think is still pretty rare. And you have accomplished that. Is there a, something you can point to growing up or early on in your career where you realize I actually have these two passions and they, 
they're not mutually exclusive. I can pursue both of them. This is a really important question. You know, um, my whole life I struggled between these two in my early years. Whenever, but the weird thing is, whenever I was singing, I'd be thinking, "Oh my God, I've got to study." <laughs> and whenever I was studying and I had a really tough exam, I'd be humming songs in in my head. And in fact, I'll never forget. Even later on, one of my clients about twenty years ago said to me, "I was in the middle of a very serious board meeting," and he suddenly said, "Chandrika, is that you humming?" <laughs> and it was, and I didn't even know I was humming because it's it just is what happens in my brain. It's this music always happening somewhere. But you see, but it wasn't that I thought I was really good at anything. That wasn't my definition of myself. I decided twenty some years ago that I wanted the happiest moments of my life had to do with music, and I wanted music to be an integral part of it. And I don't mean music as a performer, not music as a Anything, music to just sing and make myself happy. That's why I started to go back seriously to music. It just happened that I developed a cult following with my earlier albums, and it's sort of gone on. But that was never my intent. I didn't even know what a. To be honest, I didn't even know what a Grammy was. You know, years ago, it, this wasn't my thing. I was literally there to sing, and I would just seek out teachers because I, it was my happy place to sing. Do you remember where you were? You mentioned the Grammys when you learned you were nominated for a Grammy. Do you remember? I that was moment? in my apartment, my husband and I, and it was almost it was a shock. And I must tell you because the the biggest shock was being nominated with people like Sergio Mendes. I grew up on Brazil '66. In fact, in when I was eighteen, eighteen, I was just like Brazil '66 was my. Go to album for hours, like on replay. You know this big vinyl recording I had, Bebel Gilberto, and I lived in Brazil. So you know Yao Gilberto. I I spoke the language. I done so much of the Gilberto songs, you know, and the, so Jobim Gilberto. All of that was my was my thing. So I'm looking at this list and saying, what? Who am I with here? Hmm. How did I get there? So there's so-called Om Namo Narayana. I will never forget the 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 joyous shock, I should say. And then you just say the universe has its own way of of somehow putting you on a path. And and so that. But the thing that Grammy did, the nomination did for me at that time, is it allowed this album, so-called, to go into such a realm of people. And the number of healing stories I got out of that—I want to say hundreds of messages, hundreds of emails—when people would say, "My son was an alcoholic, and this is this album has changed him from being an alcoholic," or "My mother was dying, and the only album she would listen to is yours." And these weren't Indians or people who were used to the tradition. These were people that just experienced the sounds. So I think there was a broader purpose as to why I was nominated at that time. It wasn't really about. Me. Was there music in your home growing up back in India? All every hour of every day, we woke up. You know, we had two radio stations. They would. We had two radios and two radio stations. We had a slightly medium-sized house, and in two different rooms, two conflicting radio stations would be playing <laughs> different songs. Some would be news. Some would be songs. You just go between rooms, so you would start the morning. There's a prayer that starts the morning where you wake up the gods, which is a very long prayer in Sanskrit. And by the way, I can recite it 
by memory because every single day of my life I heard it. And then I heard music, whatever came on the radio. And lots of things came on the radio. It wasn't children's music. It wasn't grown-up music. It wasn't classical music. It was every kind of music. It was Cliff Richard. It was Dean Martin. It was uh, Radio Ceylon, which would play all these amazing artists, you know, the Seekers. That's how I got hooked on the Seekers. And, you know, the Beatles, of course, a little bit later on, you know. So I just heard music all the time, Indian film music. So I, I didn't know what a genre was of music. I didn't think of music as classical or whatever. I was training in Carnatic classical music, but that was incidental. But even in film music in India, a lot of that has Carnatic music, classical music influences. So I would easily, you know, and, and in every music, you have to be in pitch. Your, your pitch had to be good. So we worried about things like that and try to sing each song. And if you have a good musical sense, you can make the words sound good. And that's what happened to me when I went into French later on. Well, in French, singing in French, I always thought, like, no matter what you're singing about, it all sounds beautiful. Portuguese as well. I know. And this is this is really what happened to me. You know, like, I, I used to sing when I was in school. I used to sing If You Go Away, you know, in the... And then, of course, when I went to... When I started French classes at the Alliance Francaise, I just had two days of French. You know, this is... They start you on different levels. I was in Chennai. I was 15 years or 14 years old. And they start you on different levels. So my first level was what they call the certificat. So I had two days of classes, one hour each, where all you've learned so far is je parle, tu parles, il parle. You know, you've just learned the conjugations, nothing more. That was my entire French knowledge. Some guy came in from Mauritius and he was performing and he needed a backup singer to do two lines with him. So they said, can anyone sing? And I put my hand up and there I was with this guy singing two backup lines. So this happened to me two days or a week before the Jeu de Bastille. And so the head of the French Alliance Francaise said to me, he says, would you, uh, he says, I have this song which I think is going to be perfect for your voice. I said, what? I, I mean, I have two days of French and my accent is. So he and his wife, they came to my house for three days and we, I had a little tape recorder on a grande spool. We recorded it. And you know, the song I sang was Les Feuilles Mortes, which is, Autumn leaves in French. Mm. So it's a very, very exquisite number. And that was my first French performance with about five days of French at that time. It's pretty good. Yep. It's pretty and, good. They, and, my, and of course, they wouldn't let my accent fail because I was performing for a lot of people at that time. When it comes to categorization of music, there's the famous old expression from Duke Ellington, there are two types of music, good and the other kind. Doesn't, <laughs> doesn't matter what category it is. If it's good, it's good. When you were growing up, you mentioned like when you were 15, at that time, what were your expectations for yourself? What was your family's expectations for you? And were they in sync or was that a battle? Completely out of sync. You know, I was the oldest in a very traditional middle class family, you know, and all in a very large family. My father had eight brothers and sisters. My mother had eight brothers and sisters. We lived with my grandfather and I was the oldest. My father was the only son who was living with the grandfather. So all the expectations were about how I behaved. My mother would say, you can't be with the boys. And, you know, there was always a thing that I would get married. 
my earliest memories of my mother shopping for my trousseau when I was three or four. Because, you know, if she got me married well, my sister would do well, and then the family honor would be kept. So I was always the person that couldn't fail. And, and so there was a great deal of pressure on me that I would get married by the... In fact, my mother would tell all my school classmates, at 17, she'll be engaged, and at 18, she'll be married. So that was my family's expectations. They didn't mind my going to college, whatever it is. But then I wanted to go to a boys' college because when somebody told me you couldn't do something, I would say, I'm going to try. And so I wanted to go to this boys' college, really, which only had 200 girls, but a couple of thousand boys, where my father went and my grandfather went, but my mother said, you're not going there. You can go to a local girls' college, but you can't go just you know an hour away to the co-ed college. So I fought. I went on a hunger strike. I cried. I wept. So that was my expectation for myself, is that I would do what I wanted. How long were you on a hunger strike? Two days, about two days. Give or take. You know, my mother relented after that because my nun came from Holy Angels Convent to my house. My nun in a white habit who had never left the, who I had never seen outside the school. She came to my house to tell, beg my mother that, you know, she's a good girl. She won't do anything bad. You need to let her do what she wants to do. So my mother said, fine. Where do you think that strength to go up against them and to go up what the, the traditions uh, that you were going to be thrust into as a young girl, I would imagine that's not so easily done. Where does that strength come from? This is really an important question. And I've thought about this a lot, but I think in a lot of ways, it's the way I thought about myself. I didn't think of myself as bound. I thought of myself in some to use a different term, unbounded. I thought of myself as having no boundaries, no barriers, no anything. I didn't walk in thinking, I can't do this. It's a lot of the books I read. It's a lot of the poems I did. Everything for me was defined around lands of faraway uh, places and things and people and so on that I was going to encounter. I had this grand vision for myself, even though I was in this tiny little town, no internet, I didn't have access to too much. We, we lived, it was such a simple life and we were so sheltered. I wasn't allowed, really, we didn't have any play dates. We never went outside the house beyond school back. We had a lot of family in and there, but, but this wasn't something where we, we never went on trips. But yet the, I had this vision because I think because of books, I'd read all the 37 plays of Shakespeare I memorized about 200 poems probably by then, long ones, mind you. Everything from elegy written in a country churchyard to psalm of life to daffodils. You know, to this day, I remember most of them. And as you head off to university, to college, uh, is there some notion of there's a big world out there and that's where my future lies? Or was the expectation that even if you were not going to follow up on the traditions that your mother and father had planned for you as a young girl, you would be staying in India. My, I had a second hunger strike between college and business school because I got into the top business school of India where 100,000 people apply and about 100 get in. It's a big deal. But I had to go away from home. 
Um, and I was among the youngest, probably the second youngest in the whole class to get in because a lot of people get in with many years of work experience, you know, five years of engineering school and so on. But I wasn't one of them. I went straight. So I was 18 when I went to business school. Harvard had set up this business school in India. So I got into this very, very prestigious program. But my mother again said, are you nuts? You know, you are, I'm not going to put you in a house of sin, you know, <laughs> sort of idea, which is, you know, and, and again, I understand it because that was our, our little world. Where was you going to send this marriageable daughter to, to some place far away with a group of boys? That, that's what business school was. Once I went to business school, again, a second hunger strike, my professor saved me from college. Same thing. My professor brought his entire, his nephews, four guys showed up at my house. And they had this big debate with my grandfather, my mother saying it's the important thing to let her go to do this. Once I went there, then I was free. And after uh, business school, as I understand it, when you come to the United States for a job interview, uh, as you're coming over, first of all, uh, was that interview set up while you were still in India? And second of all, as you're flying over, is the thought, is there, is there a sense of confidence going in or is there, are there moments of, wow, am I really about to do this? I did think about, I wasn't worried or I wasn't happy. It just was. I was on this total adventure, bud, because here I was. When I came to America, I was 23. I had an MBA. I had worked for three years for Citibank. I was on a very fast track. I had three PhD. I was accepted in three PhD programs with full scholarships. So I had, I had a lot of opportunities. And then I got this job with McKinsey which was was incredible. But I what I didn't know is I didn't have any of the ways that normal people have a runway to get in, which is you go to college, you make all your mistakes, right? I didn't know I didn't know what winter was. I had never seen snow. I had never I didn't I imagined cold, but in India where I grew up, when it's 85 degrees, my mom would say, oh take your shawl and put it on. It might get too cold. Because the temperature is normally 100, 105, 103, you know. And so for me, the idea that you would be in the worst blizzard of ever, you know, and at minus five, I, it was like I had never seen that sort of thing. I didn't know how to drive, really. I mean, I'd taken some lessons, but, you know, to suddenly drive on the American highway, I didn't know how to dress. I'd never worn a suit before. I'd never shown my legs. Because that's not something uh, pedigreed Indian girls do, you know, not from my tradition, no. At, at any point after you started working here, did all of that become almost too much? Were there ever any moments of, I, I don't know if this is going to be for me. I, um, I can do the work. There's no question there. But all of these cultural differences, uh, was it still an adventure a couple of months or a year in? Or were there moments of, I'm thinking about going back. It was never about going back because what happened is then this, I think, is the greatness of um, America, really, which you don't quite see. And in fact, the greatness of my life in New York, it was I just ended up. I'm going to tell you right from the airport. I arrive in the airport in Kennedy and I couldn't, you know, they booked me at the wrong hotel or something at the, the company that had hired me. I didn't know how I was going to go there. And I had no money. 
to even go somewhere. The kindness of strangers, this old couple who didn't know who I was, they're from Saranac Lake. I still remember their faces. And I was standing there trying to think about what should I do? And I wasn't looking desperate because, you know, I wasn't, but I was just thinking what to do. And they saw me, they extended their hand, gave me a few dollars, like it was like five or seven dollars, which was a lot of money at that time for me, because that allowed me to get in transportation to come into town and and go figure out what I needed to do. I stayed in touch with them forever. I mean, I stayed in touch with them till they both passed away, probably because I had their phone number and they would call me and make sure I got, they didn't need to do that. This was so beautiful. And, and the same thing happened, you know, the lesson I learned was anytime you asked a question to people, people would answer. So I would ask people the stupidest questions because I didn't know the answers. So then I had a whole group of people, people who then taught me how to buy a suit. One of my clients took me shopping because she saw that I was wearing these very, very thick brown, like one inch thick winter suits in the middle of summer because that was what I could afford. Or, you know, I, I bought things on sale. I was still converting from Indian rupees to dollars. And to me, the idea of spending $80 on a suit was inconceivable to me that because that was so much. So I'd go to Kmart and buy $4 shirts and $4 was, I'd be converting them to rupees and saying, oh my God, I'm spending all this money. And I still had, I still have very, very middle-class values in terms of frugality. I do, I'm very simple with my desires and tastes. So I wouldn't do it. So then, but here I was in the boardrooms of the most important corporations. You know, I walked right in into the top companies. So it was a real mismatch on the one hand, and I was with McKinsey and Company, which is the bluest of the blue chip consulting firm, Baker Scholars from Harvard. Everybody is so polished and they expect you to be polished. I'll tell you one thing. They have a, in McKinsey, probably about three months in, they take you through a video program where you stand in front of a video camera with a trainer and then you look at yourself. They ask you questions like, how would you present in front of a client? The training program. I'll never forget how I felt when I saw that video. I'm just going to cry if I say this, because that probably was one of the most horrible moments of my life. Because I suddenly, just looking at myself, probably was the first time I've ever seen myself on video like that in my entire life. Because, you know, they, they, they simulate a situation. I just saw how, you know, I, my clothes didn't look like anyone else's. I was wearing patterns and colors that didn't know. I mean, this was, remember, we're talking about 43 years ago. People were, the boardrooms were all gray. They were wearing, the dress for success was the look. That wasn't, I was such a bird. I spoke ridiculously fast. My accent was different. I didn't have any common ground with anybody. They would. Nobody knew India. So, and I was a woman. And so I had everything going against me and everything going for me in the sense that that just allowed me to acknowledge that I knew nothing, but I wanted to learn. I don't want to presume anything about what it's like for a woman of South Asian descent coming to New York and working for a place like McKinsey at that time. Uh, but 
what were the how were you treated at that point by others there was a host of reactions on the one hand there was extreme curiosity about who i was what i did where i came from because india was really unknown beyond the red dot and and cows so i'd have a million conversations about cows on the road and stuff like that i mean that was the pro, pro, sort of uh, the prototype of of a typical indian conversation so that would happen and the other thing that that part of what i experienced which was the joyous part of what i experienced is the entire focus on uh, for one of a better better term i'll say meritocracy you know where if you were prepared as a professional walking in to a meeting it didn't matter who you were people really took note of what you had to say so my first client was this incredibly complicated situation that i got put into like hands knees in you know i was in it and this was it was a very very tough acquisition which involved the client spending millions and billions of dollars not billions millions of dollars to buy this company and i was responsible for figuring out if this company made sense that was my first assignment i'm telling you but after the first few hours of really thinking who do you know, who are you and what do you know once i could establish what i did know which was a lot because i had just spent days and hours and nights and god knows how much i was an expert about this company they were about to buy literally they couldn't challenge me because i had done so much work on this and so that then the whole dynamic shifted and that's what i respect i respected them and i respect now about people and this is what i tell everybody even now when i speak to them i stopped walking into any meeting from that moment on i stopped walking into any situation thinking i'm a woman i'm a woman of color i'm a woman of south asian descent i stopped walking into any situation like that i walked in thinking i'm a person who's really done an amazing amount of work i'm the best there is i've done the very best i can for this particular topic there's probably more i can do and i'll find out but i'm prepared i know what i'm about to talk about so i spent a huge amount of time so that changed my whole attitude about people but so people when you know the first few weeks and months i would be so thrown when somebody particularly i was working in the banking industry so people would look at me and say things like oh shandrika you know we gave a loan to this guy in hong kong you know 10 years ago i mean i was 23 years old and he say and you know they really cheated me and that family was indian do you have any do you know that family so i think to myself wow what are they to start with we were not quite a billion at that time but we were seven eight hundred million people no i've never been to hong kong i don't really know but then i realized something it just it was like a light bulb went on they weren't trying to put me down there was no negative issue there when you have somebody who is exactly like you they have there's a common ground right they can start to talk about baseball they couldn't talk to me about baseball or basketball cuz they didn't know if i knew anything about it so they were trying to find something that was something that they could relate to that they could show that they are connected to me once i started to look at everyone that way my whole interactions with people changed so i have to tell you a story i was in a client meeting a very important client meeting suddenly one of the clients was really ridiculous situation the client turns to me and he says well can you tell me how you how you have such black hair it could have been seen as a 
absolute, you know, microaggression. Mm-hmm. But I stopped the meeting and I said, you know, this is a really important question that you ask because in a lot of traditions in different parts of India, they actually bathe their children from birth with coconut oil. And that really keeps the hair wonderfully one wonderfully well. But you know, this is something we should talk about, but probably not at this moment. And that guy's still one of my best friends. He wasn't coming from a bad place. I just think it was awkwardness. And so I think a lot of times that's what changed my entire um, working with people. So I got to really understand and learn and work with so many kinds of people about over the years. Many musicians, when they're making their first album, uh, are in positions of, shall we say, desperation. Uh, they're, they're, they're going on this unorthodox path. They don't have a record contract, or maybe they do. And many musicians I've interviewed talked about uh, they're desperate for to make a record. They've been like doing this their whole life to try and make a record. And then hopefully for them, they make a record and it comes out and it does well. When you returned to music, you had done quite well in business, and that is great. So that notion of desperation, certainly certainly financial desperation, was not there. But in order, and along with the love for the music that you expressed earlier, was there something else that drove you when you start to get into the music more seriously and on a professional level? See, my love affair with music was never about being a professional my love affair with music is about my love affair with music. I just want to sing. I want to teach and sing with people. I want to sing for joy, you know. So my desperation was in a different form. My desperation was um, my desperation was when I wanted to learn from the masters. And I really wanted to learn from the best masters. I didn't want to because I'm, my ear is very good. And, and at the stage that I was in, I didn't want to learn from just, I wanted to really get incredible teaching. Most of the masters wouldn't take me on because they take on people when they are five and they train them their whole lives. You live, they don't care about money. These masters are interested in training you. It's like, a, it's like going to a record company and saying, sign me on, but I'm a hundred years old. You know, Most people don't care because you maybe have a few days left. You know. So I think that's kind of the same dynamic. Most of the masters say we're not interested. So finally, I persuaded one guy to, he heard me sing and then he loved how I sang. And he says, okay, come. So here I was, you know, I had done years and years and years of business. I'd worked 24 seven. I didn't see light of day in my twenties, in my thirties. I'd worked so hard and yeah, I had money, but I, nobody gave it to me. I came here with nothing. I worked for it. So I had my own desperate business life. But then I come to music and I was a music beggar. And to in one case, I would go to this master's house. It's a true story. I would be there for many hours from morning to night. I'd be cleaning dishes. I'd be making tea. I'd be doing lots of stuff. But I couldn't get a class because there wasn't a time. There wasn't given to me. If you were just meant to be there. You were meant to support. Sometimes the master might choose to teach you for five or 10 minutes. I did this for many days, but at, after some point, I couldn't handle that. It was too much. But then over a period of time, I managed to find teachers to teach me. And all I wanted to do was sing. I wanted to learn 
different ways and different ways to kind of access the divine through music. That was my goal, to access myself through music. So the, the whole journey for me was a different journey. You know, I'm not, I was never struggling to be recognized. I was never struggling to be number one. It wasn't what my journey was. My journey was music. And then the first album came about because of my grand, my father-in-law. He was turning 90. And I was singing at that time. I was practicing for hours. And, you know, but the kind of struggles I went through was I would, I was a mother. I would get up at four and I would beg my teachers to teach me. And my, most of the teachers, 6 a.m. at Wesleyan, one teacher, the, one of the masters, 6 a.m. at Wesleyan, 6 to 8 every Saturday morning. But I was traveling the whole week and I had a baby and a husband. I had a whole life I had to take care of. And so I would leave home at 3.50 every Saturday morning. I would drive to Wesleyan, which is a two-hour drive, scrape the ice off my wipers, I would have a class for two hours, sing the whole way in the car, sing the whole way back. So that's six hours of music. I'd come running back, 11.15, I'd reach home. You know, six, six to eight, yeah, I'd reach home, eight to 10. 10.15, I'd reach home. My daughter would be up around 10.30. And then I'd be a mother. This I did for about two years, you know, which then it got really too much for me. So a lot of times, same thing, I'd go to India. I'd beg my teachers to come. I would, I'd have meetings and I'd have them, I'd put them up for 10 days and I would sing morning ragas in the morning and then I would go for meetings and sing evening ragas and then I would start again at 10 and work on night ragas. So I'd sing for 12 hours and by the end of the fifth day my voice would be hoarse but I'd still keep singing. So that's how I did my music. It, it reinforces one of the thoughts I've had for years interviewing uh, influential people, successful people, intriguing people. And that is none of this is a coincidence. None of this just happens. It almost always is the, is the result of hard work and getting up at you know, three o'clock in the morning on a Saturday with children and a family to drive two hours to the middle of Connecticut. Uh, that story tells it better than anything. One final thing. With this latest CD of yours, this is truly a generation to generation piece of music that comes through. Again, the music that some of the music that you grew up with and music that you accumulated, for want of a better term, through the years. So can you tell me what it's like to hear one of your grandchildren sing a song that you sang when you were their age? It, um, I'm going to expand that answer because what has happened and what I've been doing with this album since in the last few days, weeks, is it's not just my grandchildren. I have sung with 400 kids, 500 kids by now who are singing these songs with me. We just sang at the World Cultural Festival. So there's something so beautiful about hearing my grandchildren singing it, of course, and knowing every verse of this. But to have, you know, at the World Culture Festival in D.C., I had 200 children who I'd worked with for hours singing many of the chants with great abandon and great joy and watching kids in Prague who said, you know, 
who kind of loved Amu and they all were calling me Amu. They were all giving me hugs and they were all singing Doggy in the Window and they were singing Kesara Sara. None of them spoke English, but, and so it was the whole audience. It wasn't just the children, it was all the audience. If you looked at what happened in Prague, it was the mothers would carry their little babies and they were all singing Kesara Sara. To me, that is what it's all about. And so it's, it is about, that's why I call this a hug for the world. That's why I think this is a hug. Really, that's what I'm about. So when I see my grandchildren, I can give them real hugs. But in Prague, I probably spent half my time hugging the kids because the joy, I think we, we cannot underestimate the need that the world has for an unconditional hug through music. And that's what we as musicians, as artists are here to do. Yeah, the awards are wonderful. Everything else is wonderful. But the highest purpose of at least why I'm here and why I'm doing what I'm doing, and I work very, very, very hard at it. And I don't need to, but I still really love it. It's because it is a hug across borders, across languages, across genres. I don't want a pigeonhole. I don't want a pocket. I just want everyone to feel this hug. So that's what I'm about. Weren't some of the children in Prague Ukrainian refugees? All of them were Ukrainian refugees from the Kroki Dobra and no one spoke English, but they practiced my songs for a month and they all sang and they all believed in Amu. And Amu means this figure to them was a figure of unconditional love. Chandrika Tandon. Her record Amu's Treasures has received much acclaim and several parenting awards. She's preparing to perform in Panama and India and continues her work with educational institutions both here and in India. For more information on this amazing woman, go to chandrikatandone.com. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on the journey. Mm-hmm.